0: Good morning. Glad to have you here at our 815 service here uh, as we continue this uh, two services thing. It's great to see you here. There are some empty spaces, but uh, we're glad that you're here uh, early morning to join us in worship. It's a little more intimate uh, and it feels like a family service uh, with with fewer people here. So I'm glad you're here with us and uh, we'll get to this in just a second. Let's go ahead and pray. And we'll dive right into Genesis 3 here in just a second. So keep your thumb there uh, from the reading because we'll get into it in just a sec. Let's go ahead and pray together. Lord God, it is our desire to be people who live out of a response to the truth that you paid it all for us. Lord, we're going back to the beginning of the story of redemption And we're learning from Your Word the truth that You have fashioned all of history and all of our lives and You have made all of creation to go in a direction that is about Your purpose and Your plan. And so we know that even as we discuss these fundamental issues of who we are and where we come from, we know that the end of the story heads to a place where You made up for us on the cross. And so we want to continue to be people who live as a response out of that truth that our worship, that our words, that our behavior would be fitting. Fitting enough that it would be called worship, Lord. So we're grateful for the presence of your Holy Spirit among us today. And we're grateful for the presence of our friends and our family as we, as the body of Christ, gather to continue becoming the people you've created us to be. We ask this in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. <clears throat> if you're taking notes on the inside of your bulletin there, uh, there's a little outline and, and some questions for, uh, for discussion for you to study on your own or as a part of life groups. I'm going to go ahead and tell you at the very beginning sort of the big idea today. Uh, so if you're taking notes, uh, filter what I'm saying throughout uh, from this heading, the big idea here today uh, is is the point that we're going to be making that is this, we live, we live under the delusion, we live under the delusion that we can fix sin ourselves by hiding from God. We'll see that played out very vividly in this story here of Adam and Eve, and uh, as we all know, we've played that out in our lives, uh, hiding from God is a way for us to avoid the confrontation of God telling us about the distance created in the relationship because of our sin. So that's the big idea. We live under the delusion, even now today, uh, that we can fix sin by hiding from God. Let me ask you a question. Who here uh, loved playing hide and seek when you were a kid? (laughs) A few of the kids uh, raised their hands there. When you were a kid, or if you are a kid, who loved playing hide and seek? I know, I know, I loved playing hide and seek quite a bit. Let me tell you about little Jimmy. Uh, little Jimmy was a typical kid who loved to play hide and seek, uh, but but one time he kind of took it too far. There was this uh, telemarketer who called little Jimmy's home. He called his house, and he said, uh, and, and and little Jimmy, with his four-year-old small voice, said, "Hello, hello, what's your name?" Jimmy, I'm, I'm sorry. That, let me back up. <laughs> the telemarketer didn't even know the name of the kid yet. <laughs> so the telemarketer says, "What's your name?" and the kid whispers, "Jimmy," really softly into the into the telephone. And, and, and the person on the other line says, "How old are you, Jimmy?" There, not now the telemarketer knows the name. <clears throat> and little Jimmy keeps whispering. He says, "I'm four. Good. Is your mother home, Jimmy? Yes, but she's busy. Okay. Is your, is your father home? Yeah, but he's busy too. I see. Who else is there, Jimmy? The police. <laughs> the police. May I speak with one of them, Jimmy? <laughs> no, they're busy too. Are there any other grown-ups there, Jimmy? Uh, Can I speak with one of the firemen, please, Jimmy? It's really important that I speak to him. They're all busy. Jimmy, with all those people in your house, I can't talk with any of them. What are they doing, Jimmy? They're looking for me. (laughs) Little Jimmy is a lot like us playing hide-and-seek. I I know that I love to play hide-and-seek. Uh, a lot as a kid. We didn't have the video games or uh, fancy phones or things like that. Uh, our only video game that I can remember uh, was Pong, and that was about 10 years after it came out. Uh, the Wakefield household got their video games 10 years after from a garage sale, so, so all we had to do was play hide-and-seek or, or kick the can and, and run around the neighborhood. Uh, I was probably one of the last generations uh, in America where that was the case. I remember we lived in Carter County on Sparks Road in the Happy Valley area there, right off Elizabethan Highway. I remember in Sparks Road, I used to play with a guy down the street named Carl Card. And Carl and I would play hide-and-seek with our neighbors, Britt and Brittany. And and I remember when Dad was on staff at uh, First Christian in Johnson City in the 70s and in the 80s, I remember as a little kid feeling like I had this huge space, all this room to to play hide-and-seek and and to run around in all the nooks and crannies and and to, to ride the big wheel around that circle there. Uh, The fun part of hide-and-seek was the anticipation of finding someone or being found. It was those sort of heebie-jeebies that you felt in your stomach when you you were hiding or or when you were looking for somebody because you never knew it was going to come around the corner. And that was that anticipation. I I remember as a kid when, when my brother and I would hide out in the house before Dad would come home. And Dad would come home, and we might be behind the shower curtain or underneath the table, and as soon as he would walk in, we would pounce out and uh, and really just freak him out. That was the fun part, was that anticipation, those heebie-jeebies in your stomach. But if you'll remember closely about your hide-and-seek days as a kid, there were two scenarios as a kid that were game killers when it came to hide-and-seek. It was first the being found suddenly thing. It was almost that scary part. It's the dark side of hide and seek. Uh, it, it could be that moment when someone lifted up that tablecloth or they, or they uh, hit that, that shower curtain real quick and there you were startled. You, know, you were found out suddenly. Uh, but but if, if you scared someone uh, too much or, or too quickly, I remember a few times a, a couple kids would quit. So that was one of the game killers for hide and seek. But the real game killer in hide-and-seek was that sort of boring and almost, almost sad part of hide-and-seek, that, that boring part of hide-and-seek where you hide well enough so that you can't be found. And you're sitting there, five minutes, ten minutes, you may be hearing voices even, you can hear the kids around playing hide-and-seek, and you're still sitting there going, hello. Hello. I'm right here. Like little Jimmy in a closet as policemen and, 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 and firemen uh, seek after him. <clears throat> what we see in the story today is the, the good news is that you cannot hide well enough to avoid being confronted by an infinite, perfect, and holy God. The crazy part, the crazy part about following God is that He finds us first. He seeks after us first, even before we begin to hide from Him. You see, that's how it works. It's almost backwards. It's not hide and seek. It's seek and hide. That's how sin messes up the relationship between us and God. We see this throughout this passage. If you've got it open, look at verses 8 through 10 there. We're going to focus on that especially for a few minutes here. The first thing we notice is that God seeks. And let's go ahead and remind ourselves of this passage by reading together uh, this whole passage uh, from 8 to 13. It says this. They, that's Adam and Eve, they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? Verse 10, He said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, that is God, God said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. Verse 13, Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. Now let's focus on that first verse there in verse 8. It says, They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. Now, Remember the context from last week. They had just rebelled against God's design for their own delight. They had just rebelled. They had just disobeyed God's command not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And in response, Adam and Eve tried to make their own coverings. They used fig leaves. uh, They made loincloths for themselves. They tried to cover, in a sense, their own sin. And I remember we talked about last week the idea that that we have been trying to do that in various ways ever since. To cover up the spiritual death, the distance we experience from our relationship with God. We fabricate ways to make up for our own sin. And that's what it means there in verse 7. Let's go ahead and read that context one more time from last week. It's important for this week that we read what happened last week. It says this, immediately uh, before what we are uh, talking about today. Verse 1, now the serpent, this is verse 1 in chapter 3, the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said... and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Verse 7. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. So here, in our passage today, immediately after their rebellion from God, immediately after their rebellion from God, we find that God is the one who seeks first. It's backward in our head, but it's what the Scripture says here. Verse 8, it is the Lord God, immediately after the context within which they rebelled from Him, it is the Lord God who seeks them and wants to take a stroll with them. Friends, this is the beginning of the picture of grace that we see in our relationship with God. It's very clear that we rebel. It's very clear that sin creates a distance. It's very clear that that distance is an insurmountable distance. Insurmountable by us. Insurmountable by any loincloth or fig leaf or covering we could ever come up with, actual or figurative. And immediately after this, we begin to see the picture of grace emerge. That picture of grace that becomes the covenant relationship between God and His people. It is God who is seeking after Adam and Eve. It is significant to note here a few things that paint this picture of grace. Note just a few things here in the text. First, look at the use of the name of God. The use of the personal covenant name for God. Now remember we talked about the use of the word God in general terms, in in chapter 1 especially. Uh, That was Elohim. That was the generic name for God in Genesis 1. That was God's name that was intended uh, to to describe a a majestic, a big universe-making God who creates worlds with a word. But here, Moses tells us it's the Lord God. Yahweh Elohim. The God who Moses would know as the I Am when God appeared to him. This is the, the, the personal covenant relationship God. He is pictured here as wanting to take a walk with us in the garden immediately after the context within which they rebel. Now, don't miss this. Don't miss this. He is the one looking out for them. This is a God who wants to take an afternoon stroll with his friends. The use of the term cool of the day in that verse 8 right there, it says the sound of the Lord God was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. In the Middle East, this was probably the late afternoon and uh, that was when the ocean breeze, uh, the the breeze would come across the plains and uh, it was more pleasant to be outside. So everyone knew you took your your afternoon stroll at that time. Uh, It says that uh, he was walking. In other words, God was already present there. It wasn't like he came from somewhere else. These, these words suggest a sort of relaxed relationship. And it's, and it's not that Adam and Eve were looking to take a stroll with God. It's the other way around. God wanted to take a stroll with them. Now notice that God was already present in the garden. It wasn't like God came from some other place to seek after Adam and Eve here. The opening line in verse 8 there, it tells us that he was already there. It says, and they heard the sound of the Lord God walking. It's like saying that they were, they were in the garden and they heard the rustling of the leaves in the distance there and they could tell that God's presence was there among them. This is an example uh, of a big fancy word uh, that we're going to talk about here called anthropomorphism. Anthropomorphism. Uh, you know, half of you out there probably saying anthropo-what? Here's what anthropomorphism is. It's the attribution... It's attributing human form or behavior to a deity or animal, etc. Anthropomorphism is is something that happens throughout Scripture in a number of places. And it's an important tool to have in your Bible uh, toolbox. Have you ever been in discussion with somebody and and you've tried to describe to them, "Well, well, an infinite, perfect, and holy God is like... And you fumble around because it's, it, it's hard to come up with the right words to describe him. Well, the reason that's hard is because you're trying to describe an infinite, perfect, and holy God that, that, that is so far beyond our, our everyday experience of one another, of a sinful world, that to describe him requires some sort of way of illustrating it, of picturing it. And so anthropomorphism is used throughout Scripture. The first thing we notice here is that God seeks after us. And then, and then, because of our sin, the distance in the relationship, the second thing we do, our response is to hide. We hide. That's the picture here of our response. And friends, the, the picture that the Scripture is laying out here is that our response of hiding is a way for us to play God. It's a way for us to live under the delusion, the ridiculous notion that we can be somewhere other than in his presence. It's the same exact illusion that that Adam and Eve had here. Look at the second half of verse 8 there. It says, And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God. They hid themselves from God among the trees of the garden. It's like they heard the rustling of the leaves, and they knew he was there, and they knew he was coming, and so they found the closest tree, and then they sort of hid behind it as if they could have actually been away from his presence. Notice what's going on here. They sensed, they sensed that their fig leaves were not enough. Isn't that what it's like when you're, when you're found out? <laughs> when you're found out and the guilt is apparent, you feel that weight and you think, there's nothing that I could do to make that up. They sensed that the fig leaves they'd created for themselves were not enough. And so they crouched deeper among the trees, among God's own creation. Now now, now think about that. Pathetic delusion for anyone then or today to imagine that it is possible to hide from almighty, infinite, perfect, all-present, omnipresent God. The psalmist talks about this in Psalm 139. It's a beautiful, beautiful psalm. It, it talks about how much God knows us and His presence is among us. It says, Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I send to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, in the depths, in Hades, you are there. <laughs> we all know this. We all know this. But when we disobey we naturally succumb to the folly of Jonah. We, we, we make the same kind of mistake that Jonah did, and we hop onto ships onto ships that take us to Tarshish so that we can flee from the presence of the Lord. It's right there in the first chapter of Jonah, the third verse. It says that he went to flee from the presence of the Lord. Make no mistake, when we hide from God, when we, when we try to, to live under the delusion that He is not present, it's no different than running, than fleeing on a ship to Tarshish. There's a great way to, uh, that I came across to, to phrase this for the philosophy nerds out there. This is the one, one way that, that a preacher says it. Uh, unbelief spawns the ontological delusion that we can be where God is not. You may want to write that down and, and chew over it this week after you look up the word uh, ontology. Uh, Ontology is just a a fancy philosophical term that talks about uh, the nature of our being or existence. Um, Unbelief, when we don't believe God's design for our delight, as we've been talking about the last couple of weeks, when we don't put our whole faith and trust in that, we begin to live under the delusion that we can be where God is not, that we can hide. I like how one preacher said it. He said this, Sin breaks the relationship and brings distance. So much so that hiding hiding from God and all of the pathologies that come with it seem to us a natural response. Think about that. Sin breaks the relationship so much that it even feels natural for us that we should hide. Hide from a God who has just come to seek us. Hide from a God who has a covenant relationship with us that is marked not only by the confrontation we see here, but by the grace that He is laying out for us. The way He redeems us. Think about how almost pathetic Adam and Eve are in this circumstance. They were literally hiding from the presence, that word "presence" in verse eight is the face. it's literally the face of God. Some translations have it that way. Think of how silly it it, it seems to us. oh, like you can hide between you and God behind a tree. those silly <laughs> those silly ancient people hiding from God behind a tree, you know it seems like the more we know and the more we create things and the more we experience life, the more trees we can create behind which we hide. Because of sin, we become people who are in the business of making fig leaves for ourselves and creating trees behind which we can hide. And it doesn't have to be a thing. In fact, it's an attitude of the heart that manifests itself in in a myriad of ways. So we see here that first God was seeking and then they hid. And lastly we see that God found them. It's seek and find. It's seek and hide. It's not hide and seek. The text says this in verses 9 to 10. Follow along if you're in your Bible there. It says this in verses 9-10. to But the Lord God called to the man, to him specifically, and He said to him, Where are you? That you there is a singular you. It's not plural you. It's where are you, Adam? This is sort of like a father saying to the guilty child hiding behind a door to avoid the face of the father, it's sort of like saying, why are you hiding there? Is that where you should be? Come out and face me. So Adam, realizing that God had found him, that, that he had been found out, he rose from his hiding place, he sort of was shame-faced and, and, and wearing ridiculous fig leaves, mumbled the reply, and the wife crept out slowly after him. Notice, notice Adam's response here. There was no actual admission of wrongdoing. He only said, I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. At that moment, Adam was more aware of his nakedness and his shame than of the reality of his own sin against a perfect infinite, holy God who deserved nothing but perfect obedience. Adam is more aware of his feelings of fear and shame than he is about the distance created that brought the spiritual death he was experiencing between him and God. What does that tell us? The only thing Adam truly confessed to was fear. The only thing he truly confessed to was a feeling. Of course, he knew he had broken God's command, but in his new self-focused state, he was more concerned about how he felt than his own sin against God. He was concerned about how this was affecting him. Gave no thought. the truth that he had offended a perfect infinite holy God and yet God's response is still gracious notice notice that God drew Adam from hiding rather than drove him from it the initial question was not sort of uh, an indictment like like where are you hiding but it was simply a where are you there was not a hint of accusation In God's question, God even nudged Adam, graciously even, to come to his senses. The whole process here, even in the Old Testament at the beginning of Genesis, is filled with grace. Redemption, the process by which we are saved from that sin that distances us, starts with grace even in the garden. When he, at a moment's notice, could have said, you're gone forever. Forget it. You failed. It's over. The distance is irreparable. And he would have been justified to do so. And we've been feeling the effects of that in our world and in our own lives ever since. Romans 3, the 11th verse, 311, it says, No one seeks God Everyone flees God. Even after being confronted with sin, man's seeking was not after God and His glory and His purposes, but it was after the idolatrous small g-God of His own making. Himself. One commentator sort of said it this way. I like the way this is stated. It said, fear and shame and flight seem to be the incurable stigmata of the fall. And we only begin to deal with the effects of that rebellion and sin. We only begin to deal with them when we have a transaction with a God who says to us, where are you? I'm trying to find you. You're lost. Where, where are you hiding? Come out from there so that I can know you. Friends, the Old Testament is filled with gracious words of redemption. When from the very beginning, even in our rebellion against God, he says, please, come to me. We're about to sing a song that is a response to this truth that demonstrates that there is nothing that can save us from that place of hiding, that, that place of sin that we find ourselves. Nothing but the blood of Jesus Christ that accomplishes for us that redemption and salvation from our own sin. And so what could have been irreparable damage in our relationship with God is made whole, is made perfect again by the life of Jesus lived in front of a perfect and holy God as a response to what He deserves. Friends, may we become people who increasingly live our lives like that. In response to a perfect, infinite, and holy God who deserves all glory All fame. All power. Let's stand and sing.